Well, my name is John Fox, and I am the interim lead pastor here, and today we're going to continue in our series on Acts. So if you have a Bible, feel free to crack it open and get into Acts 14. There are Bibles next to you on the rows if you don't have one. Uh, And if you don't have one, period, you're more than welcome to take that home with you as a gift. And uh, I hope that it would serve you well. So today in Acts 14, just to give you a little bit of review, uh, we're going to be continuing on a, uh, a certain trajectory that's been set forward to us here in Acts. And in Acts 12, two weeks ago, we saw that there was kind of one last barrier for the gospel moving forward into all the earth, and that was a man named Herod, King Herod, and his, uh, his agenda was to set himself up as God, and as he did that, then God knocked him down, and the gospel still went forward, and then in Acts 13 last week, Chris Henson uh, showed us that this this knocking down of God's enemy actually began the process of the gospel going to all the world, which it had not done before, at least not as pointedly as it did last week, and there was a particular calling. Uh, The Holy Spirit comes, and while Paul and Barnabas and others are together, a very diverse crowd of people are praying, the Holy Spirit says to them, set Paul and Barnabas apart for the missionary journey I have to send them on. So they get set apart, there's fasting, there's praying, and then they go off into worlds unknown, and uh, they start sharing the gospel. And, And last week was the first part of that. And as they do that, they experience some persecution, some hardship, but really things take a a serious turn for the worse in some ways in this chapter, Uh, and that's really what the chapter is about, is hardship. As they they continue sharing the gospel, they they move from being a part of places where uh, it's more comfortable for them, there's more Jews, there's, there's more places um, more cultural norms that they're used to, and they will, they'll move out into the foreign regions as far as they're concerned, where they've never been, and where the gospel certainly has never been. And as they do this, they'll experience some intense hardship. And the hardship that they experience really kind of uh, is probably most evident in some ways in verse 22, and I won't read that for you, we'll get there, but In chapter 14, verse 22, the word comes up, and it's really kind of the all-pervading theme. So I'll give you a little bit of a cheat today instead of actually working our way there. I'll just tell you, that's what the chapter is about. And as Luke records this, and Paul talks about it, he'll use the word hardship to describe what's been happening this whole chapter and what they go through from city to city to city. And there's some different ways that you could look at it. Uh, your translation may say tribulation. Uh, there's, there's a number of different options for translating it. And the idea really is that there's just this kind of umbrella of difficulty or hardship that is the biggest umbrella for what a Christian can go through in life. You see, he could have said, Paul could have said later in verse 22 that that he has experienced and Barnabas has experienced persecution. And that's certainly true, as we'll see. But something, something grander is going on in this story. And 
the way that he talks about it is just to say hardship. Uh, you could say it some different ways. It could be tribulation. That's the way ESV does it, which is pretty good, but it, it still kind of has this um, more archaic sense to it, so I went with hardship, but uh, tribulation, difficulty, suffering, troubles, afflictions, distresses, all different ways that you could describe what is happening to them in this chapter. The word uh, in the original language really means to press or to squash or to squeeze, and it really gives you the idea of a wine press or an olive press. The point is there's such intense physical pressure, and it's not only that that we see that there's emotional pressure involved, but, but the pressure forces out whatever is in the thing. That's the idea with the word and what's happening. Whether it's, you call it affliction, difficulty, suffering, troubles, distresses, hardships, whatever it is, that's the kind of thing that forces, forces whatever is in you out. Whatever it is that is really motivating, driving, enabling you to do what you do, that's what comes out. It's what's in your heart. And so that's the way that Paul will describe it. And as he describes it, it's evident that what comes out of them is something that only God can do. And I'm really glad that he uses not just this specific word for persecution, but this kind of general idea because this is how it is in life. I mean, not many of us in this room probably have ever really faced persecution for being a Christian. You haven't had death threats, probably. Uh, maybe you've had some, some snide comments made about you, or you've been excluded from some groups of people, but really you probably haven't ever had intense physical persecution like Paul and Barnabas get here today. And so I, I'm glad that he uses a word that everyone can relate to. I can relate to it. And this idea of being pressed, crushed, the, the intensity of life is so difficult it, it goes to all different kinds of things. It's not just physical persecution. It is all sorts of things in life. It's when you're so depressed that you can't, can't even imagine getting up in the morning. Or when you have a family member die. Or when you lose your job. And the weight of all of it comes crushing you down. That's what Paul is talking about. This sort of experience where you have no choice. You have nothing to do but to look up. That's what happens with them. And there's a lot of godly men and women in the past who have seen this sort of thing. I'll just throw a few quotes at you, some great ones. Robert Murray McChain uh, said it this way, that affliction brings out graces that cannot be seen in a time of health. It is the treading of the grapes that brings out sweet juices of the vine. So it is affliction that draws forth submission, weanedness from the world, and complete rest in God. Use afflictions while you have them. I love that. Use afflictions while you have them. It's so counterintuitive. We don't think that way. We don't live that way. Or John Wesley, the famous Methodist, he said this, that one of the greatest evidences of God's love to those that love them is to send them afflictions with grace to bear them. They're coming, and you need them, he says. And then Spurgeon says this, that most of the grand truths of God have never been learned by trouble. 
They must be burned into us with the hot iron of affliction, otherwise we shall surely not receive them. You see, what Paul and Barnabas experienced in this chapter is something that they would never receive otherwise. They would never understand the grace of God to the level that they do apart from the difficulty that happens to them. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to start off, and, and that's really the main point for the day, is this, that hardships are never pointless for the believer in Jesus. That's the main thing that we draw out of this. Hardships are never pointless for the believer in Jesus. And there's at least three reasons why. You could probably say more, but there's at least three reasons why this is the case. And I'll just give all of them to you. They should come up. Number one is that hardships make us bolder for Christ. So this is an in-house conversation. This is what the afflictions, the hardships do. They make us bolder for Christ. Not only that, hardships make us witnesses for Christ. And hardships make us encouragers with Christ. That's what we are going to see today. And we'll start with the first one. The hardships make us bolder for Christ. And I'll start reading in verse 1. Now at Iconium, it's a city they go to in their missionary journey. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So we see that Paul and Barnabas move into a new city, start preaching, and some amazing things happen. As they do that, the city becomes sharply divided. It's almost like Luke is saying half the city becomes believers, and the other half becomes against the believers. And a huge thing for us to notice here is in between verse 2 and then verse 3. People become believers, some people don't agree with it, and then the Jews, this becomes the normal method for the Jews, that they hear about it, they become jealous, and they stir up the Gentiles, poisoning the minds against the brothers. The, there's not many ways that, that Luke could speak more negatively of these people, poisoning their minds. They know the truth, and this is even uh, what he says. It's maybe a little bit more difficult in English, but he says that they were... They, they rejected this message that essentially that these Jews disobeyed. They heard the word of God. They understood it clearly. They knew what Paul and Barnabas were talking about. And they said, no, we are not going to believe that. We're going to disobey it. And we're also going to turn other people against it. And so as they do that, then verse three comes. So they remained for a long time. This is not natural. This is not normal. You see, Barnabas and Paul become bold not because there is no opposition in the city against the name of Christ. They become bold because there is opposition. It would have been very easy for Paul and Barnabas to just remove 
to see, you know, there's, there's some difficulty here. There's some conflict. I don't like conflict. I'd rather just leave. But they say, no, there, there are people in this city that need to hear the gospel. And there are people in this city that are preventing other people from hearing the gospel. So instead of leaving, we're going to stay. And, and this is just so counterintuitive. Not many of us do it. When you experience some sort of opposition or, or confrontation in life, I think most of us, by nature, probably just fold. We, we probably say, you know what? I'll go somewhere else. I don't need to talk to this person. It's not worth my time. It's not worth my energy. Paul and Barnabas here see that something incredibly important is at stake, and they say, you know what? We're not going to leave. We're going to stay. And one of the reasons I'm sure that they stayed is because they know there are new believers here. And if we pull out now, they're going to get sucked into the belief systems of these other people that oppose Christ. And so they said, we're not going to leave. We're going to stay. And so they remained a long time. Some commentators say that they were there for probably six months. Six months of day in and day out, getting up, having people yell at you, argue with you, you're a foreigner in this city. You come in, you don't know the city, you don't know the people. But for six months, at least probably, they get up day in and day out and they say, you know what? Jesus is the Christ. You have to follow him. He's the promised one of God. And they just take the opposition. And not only that, we see that Doing this causes boldness for them, and it's something that happens all through Acts. In Acts 13, 46, just the last chapter, says this, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. That's boldness, to be able to go to people and say to them, you don't know Christ. You don't love him. You don't accept him. And that will lead to your demise, eternal demise. That's not a message that people just want to hear, if you haven't noticed that. I mean, that's not a message that people want to say, but it needs to be said. People need to hear, and they need you to say that there is only one way to God. There is only one hope for life, and it's Jesus. That's it. And so they became bold. They embraced the conflict. And this could happen on some huge level for you like this to where you're in a public setting and you just have to say, you know what? I stand with Christ more than anything else. Or it could happen in small ways where you're trying to work out your salvation. You're trying to work out the Bible with what God says and what should happen. And we have all sorts of opportunities to do this. One of the biggest ways that I think everyone's really attuned to right now, because it's such a hot-button issue, is abortion. And I don't think the church normally should take political sides because the church sits above politics. It's something that Psalm 2 says us. But we should stand up for truth. This is what Paul and Barnabas are doing. When it comes to them, they aren't saying, you know what, I'm not going to say anything about that issue because it's sensitive. No, they engage, and God grants them boldness and works in them for boldness. Or it may not be something such as a hot-button issue as that. Maybe it's something a little bit more personal for you. I remember uh, one, of the, 
one of the biggest times of my life for this, for some reason, I was in a small group with another guy at another church in another city, so it's no one you know, um, but uh, no, one, no, one, no one in the room. But as I was in a, a small group with him in the church, um, one of the things that we had talked about was just normal Christian sanctification issues, issues. so purity. The guy was struggling with pornography intensely, severely addicted to it. And for, I don't know, some three months we'd be meeting, and this was just a recurring issue all the time. And, and then one day he found out that he was interested in a girl that I knew from a previous city. Uh, and so he asked me to uh, hook him up with her. And, uh, and I was like, man, this is, this is going to be rough. Um, and so as I was doing that, I said, hey, you know what? I'm not trying to offend you with this, but if you're not faithful without a, even a girlfriend, how are you going to be faithful with a wife? And he pretty much never talked to me again after that. And so, um, but, but that was an issue that I had to engage. I saw there's biblical truth here. I know what's going to happen. And I need to speak up. I have to be bold about this. And I was so shaken after that conversation. I was literally like shaking in my car. I was like, I can't believe I just said that to that guy. But he needed to hear it. He needed to hear that that issue was so big and so important. It would not just disappear when he got married, but he needed to learn to be faithful. And that kind of thing helps the church. It helps other people see, you know what? There are real issues at stake here. There's real boldness that needs to happen where we go into other people's lives and we tell them Jesus is, is the Christ and here's what the Bible says. God demands things from us and we need to preach that. And that's what happens after this conflict in verse seven, after it gets so intense, they find out there's an assassination attempt against them. They end up saying, you know what? We're gonna move on. And in verse seven, how does it end? But it says that they moved to these other cities and there they continued to preach the gospel. It didn't slow them down, not one beat. All the persecution, in fact, all the difficulty that they experienced only fueled this desire for them to continue on and to make Christ known. Some of you need to hear it. Some of you need to hear it because left to yourself, you're going to take the path of least resistance every time. You're just going to say, you know what? I don't need to say anything about that. I don't need to stand up for the sanctity of life. I don't need to stand up for Jesus being the only way to God. I don't need to do that. You do. We do. At the same time, we notice with Paul and Barnabas that they're not trying to pick a fight. They're not entering the public sector, and they're, they're not saying, you know what, I'm going to just try to get people upset. That's not their goal. Their goal is to lovingly come in, present God's truth, and leave the results to him. You see, hardships are never pointless for the believer in Jesus because they produce boldness. And when confronted by the overwhelming opposition of the world, they produce boldness in the believer. They did in Paul and Barnabas, and that's what we see as a kind of theme through Acts, especially the remainder of it. And even before what we saw with Peter and the apostles in Jerusalem, what did they do? They got down on their knees after the first confrontation with the religious leaders, and they say, God, please grant us boldness. And what did he do? He granted them boldness. 
This is what God does in us through hardship. But there's more. Hardships make us witnesses to Christ as well. In verse 8, we read this, that now at Lystra, the city that they moved to, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker and the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowd. So what happens next? They move to a different city and they start doing the same thing, preaching the gospel. As they do that, they experience something really odd. And I couldn't help but thinking as I read this uh, about the return of the Jedi. Because there's that scene in the return of the Jedi where C-3PO is taken captive and what happens? He's lifted up as the golden god, right? There's this weird situation where the Ewoks take C-3PO, put them, him up on a throne, and said that he's the god. It's kind of a similar situation here. I don't know if uh, Lucas was reading Acts 14 when he wrote it, but uh, they come into the city, they preach the gospel, heal this man, and then everyone in the city freaks out and says, the gods are among us. And it just goes to show you some of what these people are like. And uh, reading some of the background for it, it, there's no mistaking it. A lot of people in the ancient world back then thought the Lyconians were just really stupid people. Uh, they really were just very gullible people. They were people, a part of the Roman Empire, who were kind of out in Nowheresville, and, and they kept kind of a, a rugged outpost. They lived in caves and huts. They uh, they were very pagan, very primitive. And so as Paul and Barnabas go into this area and they perform this miracle by God's grace, the people see it and they, they start shouting in their own dialect and they, they say, you know what? The gods are among us. Zeus and armies are among us. And Paul and Barnabas freak out because they don't know what's happening. They can't really understand the language too well. And when they understand it, they realize that they are being set up as gods to be worshipped. And instead of accepting it, they totally reject it, completely reject it. Now, why is Luke giving us this excerpt here? He, he could have said a lot. He could have given, kind of honed in on some other cities and things that happened, but he does only this because he's saying that Paul is a witness to Jesus' power. Paul and Barnabas are. There's another episode in Acts that we saw a while ago, so you probably forgot about it. But in Acts 3, Peter is in the temple courts, and there's a beggar who's crippled from birth sitting there, and they lock eyes, and he says, rise and walk. Jesus heals you. And he gets up. It's a very similar episode. The difference is, in Jerusalem, they all knew about Jesus as Messiah. They all knew about the one God. They were monotheistic, and here, completely pagan. It's a completely different starting ground. As they begin to share the gospel, 
and they heal this man, they realize nobody in this whole town understands some basic theology about God. So what did they do? They have to witness about him. And this is how it is. If you've ever been maybe to some uh, other countries, then you probably realize you cannot start the gospel with saying Jesus is the promised one of God. You have to start before that. You have to start, especially uh, in Buddhist or Hindu countries, to say, you know what? There's just one God who created everything. And that's what they do. That's how they start to communicate it to him. In verse 14, they say, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Paul and Barnabas come in when they find out what's happening and they tear their garments. It's a way of saying, this is blasphemy. Blasphemy. We're not gods. It's not about us, is what they're saying. And this is in sharp contrast to what happened just two chapters earlier with Herod. What does Herod do? He sets himself up as God. He says, it's all about me. I'm the one you should worship. And a sweet contrast that we have here is Paul and Barnabas, when they receive the worship, what did they say? They say, no, it's not about us. We are not gods. We serve the one God. And how do they try to communicate it to them? They speak in terms they can understand. They give them a basic theology 101. They say, it's not us, we're mere men. God is the one who gives you all good things. And being in a rural context, they could get this. They could understand some basic terms. Look how he talks about it. In verse 16, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Everyone in the world understands being full and being happy and having good things. Everyone. And that's how they communicate with them about this, that there is one God and he's good to you. And that begins the starting ground of their theology of who God is and why they need to listen to him. And so they're trying to do this. They're trying to teach them about Jesus. They're being witnesses for Christ. And then they have to do something extreme. In verse 19, we see that a a turn takes place and some Jews come and track down Paul and Barnabas. But Jews come from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds and stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. As the predictable pattern emerges, Paul gathers a following of people who want to kill him, and they followed him to a, a village to put an end to him. This is, this is no light thing. They come 
over 100 miles, this group of eclectic Jews get together and they say, we have to put an end to Paul. And they come together and they get out to this middle of nowhere spot and they find him and they try to kill him. So they get everybody to turn against them. And as they do, they pick up rocks, throw them outside the city and kill him. At least they think they do. And there's, there's some irony here, because this is exactly what Paul did with Stephen, isn't it? He thought he was in the right. He thought he was working for God. And then when he comes to kill Stephen, Stephen makes a prayer. And the prayer is, God, don't hold this sin against them. And here's, here Paul is in Stephen's same position. But Paul doesn't die. He doesn't die as a witness. He gets to live, at least for a while. And they convince the people to turn against him. And so eventually, Paul gets up, goes back into the city, and then will leave to other cities. Here's the amazing thing about Paul and Barnabas' witnesses. Not only is God just giving them boldness to do this, but their sacrifice of witness shows everyone indisputably, how valuable Jesus is. You see, in your life, in my life, when we come to a crossroads of sorts and we have to decide how valuable Jesus is to us and we take the hit, we suffer for it, then we show how valuable that thing is. And for the people in this city, in this small town, I'm sure that they, they left some people saying, this man was willing to die for this message. He was willing to die to give us this message and give us hope. What kind of man is this? What kind of message is this? And it happens for us too. Whenever we suffer affliction, hardship, we have the opportunity and whatever hardship is happening, it's an opportunity for you and for me to say, you know what? Jesus is better. He's better than that thing. And it may happen sporadically to you, or, or you can even say it may happen in a planned way for you. Here's one of the ways I was thinking about it is uh, in terms of budget. Like how much money do you budget for spiritual development just in a year? You could use that money for other things, certainly. But what kind of books do you buy to help you know Christ, to study, to learn? Or what about benevolence? How do you help other people? How do you contribute to the church? How do you support orphans and widows? These are all things that communicate to other people, Jesus is more important than our money or our time or our comfort. And it's so backwards to us because we just want all the comfort. But you can't have the comfort and be a witness too. That's what Paul tells us. It's the furnace of affliction that we learn to despair of our own strength and cry out to God for help. Hardship helps us become better witnesses for Christ. Not only that, last we see that hardship makes us encouragers with Christ. Pick up in verse 21. After this scene where Paul's almost murdered, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra 
into Iconium, into, Anti- into Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord and whom they had believed. After they finish their preaching circuit, as they go through on their missionary journey, they get to a point where they can easily just kind of keep going and make a quick trip back to Antioch, where they came from. That's what's happening. And they do something a little unexpected here. They actually backtrack. They go back through all of the towns that they were just in. Now, think about this. Paul and Barnabas get to the end of their missionary journey, and they've preached Christ boldly, and then they say, you know what? I think we're done. And then they go back through all the towns for the purpose of encouraging the disciples. That takes guts. I mean, serious guts. To go back into cities where you had people coming out to kill you, that's incredible. So we see the boldness again. But not only that, we see something else. In verse 23, that they had, uh, or verse 22, that they encouraged them. It says that they they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. And as I was reading that, I was thinking, okay, how do you strengthen souls? That's a kind of a unique phrase. Encouraging them. So they strengthen them by encouraging them to continue in the faith. So what is it that they're saying that really just fuels the fire for these new believers to get them to love Christ more? What do they do? And verse 22 says, and saying that through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but that caught me off guard as I was reading. It's like Paul and Barnabas get all the believers together in each of the cities that they've gone to. They get back to them, and they circle everybody up, and they say, you know what? We have a message of encouragement for you. We're going to tell you something, and it's just going to encourage you incredibly. Are you ready? You will suffer. That's what they say. They say, you, not just you will suffer, you have to suffer. There is no other way. Through many tribulations, you could say hardships, through many hardships, we must enter the kingdom of God. Another way that Luke highlights this, this is to say, uh, it, it's a technical way, is to say it's the term of divine necessity. It's the same word, you must, that Jesus uh, uses in the Gospels, that he must, he had to go through Samaria, or he had to go towards Jerusalem. There's no other way. In God's sovereign plan, there is no other way than this way. And Paul and Barnabas say, and it is suffering. It's tribulation, it's affliction, it's difficulty. This is the only way you get into the kingdom of God. And this is a huge encouragement to the disciples. And there's more that we could say about it. And I think Paul probably has this episode in mind, along with others, in 2 Corinthians, when he talks about it this way. He's going to use the same word, same word for affliction, for hardship. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction or hardship, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. 
You see the comfort that they give, the encouragement that Paul gives here to the believers is that all these hardships, all these afflictions, all these things that you must go go through, they do something in you. They move you. In some sense, they, they help you get into the kingdom. There's no other way to do it. And it's not by works, but it's an evidence of what God's done in you. And Paul's not the first one to talk about it this way. Jesus does to his disciples in John 16, 33. He'll use the same word right before he's pulled off for crucifixion and death. He says to his disciples, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. You will have hardship. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You see, the encouragement and the hope for the Christian is not that they just will suffer needlessly, but that it all is with purpose. It all goes somewhere. It's all for something. And Jesus says, I have overcome the world. The Christian's hope is not in the world that we live in. It's in the world to come. It's in the world to come. Spurgeon, talking about this this verse even said this, that it is ordained of old that the cross of trouble should be engraved on every vessel of mercy, that be Christians. As for the royal mark, whereby the king's vessels of honor are distinguished. So he's saying the way that you prove that you are actually a Christian is by experiencing afflictions. But although tribulation is thus the path of God's children, he says, they have the comfort of knowing that their master has traversed it before them. They have his presence and sympathy to cheer them, his grace to support them, and his example to teach them how to endure. And when they reach the kingdom, it will more than make amends for the much tribulation through which they have passed to enter it. Spurgeon knew it. Paul knew it. All sorts of people knew it and know it. There's only one way to enter the kingdom of God. There's only one way to be in Jesus's presence, and it is taking the same path that he took, going through hardship, going through affliction. What do we see Jesus say in the gospels all the time, except what? Go through the narrow gate. Take the high ground. It's the way of living that people don't want to live, but if you embrace it, you will find peace. So what does this mean? There's all sorts of things that this could mean. Does it mean that if you are in an abusive relationship, for example, you should just endure it? No, I don't think the Bible tells us that. Rather, when you're in those situations, whether it's abuse or anything else, you say, God, I'm in this. Please help me. Strengthen me in it. And you should get out of some of them. I'm sure Paul and Barnabas didn't want to be persecuted all the time and have rocks thrown at them. And you don't see them engaging with the crowd to do that. We're going to another city. You guys should hit us with more stones. It's a part of tribulation. That's not what they argue for. But the kingdom comes through it for them. And not only that, last we see that this encouraging that happens isn't just for them. It's for other people too. In verse 24, then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia and they had spoken 
And when they had spoken the word in Perga, then they went to Attilia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for what they had fulfilled. So a lot of P's and A's in the cities. And then, and when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And now he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. You see, all that Paul and Barnabas get, all that they experience, all the persecution, all the affliction, everything, at the end of the day, they get back to Antioch, they finish their journey, and then they say, you know what? Here's all that God has done in us. Here's all that God has done. And the effect is that not just the disciples that they made and they talked to were encouraged, but the brothers and the sisters in Antioch are encouraged. They heard of their sufferings. They heard of what God had done in the midst and in spite of the sufferings. And they said, you know what? Jesus is better. He's amazing. If God helped you, he can help me. This is the effect that we get when we walk through hardship. And this is a duty that we have as believers to go through it, not to hide it, but to share it. When you're in difficulty, any kind of difficulty, and you are pressed by it. You just feel it's like that millstone or it's like the grapes being pressed. You don't think you can take any more and God provides for you in it. And you tell other people about that. That's when God does some amazing things. I'll never forget, I was on a mission trip in Asia and one of the fellow missionaries I was with um, had an incredible experience that I, I'm sure he would say redefined his life. And as he was sharing the gospel with one of the uh, nationals that we were spending time with, he ended up, ended up saying that um, he, he had an abusive past and, and the, the man that he was talking to also had an abusive past. And in the area that we're in, it was just prototypical because of uh, alcohol. It was just very, very common for abuse to happen in families because of the alcohol that was involved in the area. And he learned about this, and he's talking with this young man who doesn't know anything about Jesus. And then he starts to open up and tell him, you know what? I've been telling you about Jesus, but let me tell you something that Jesus has done in my life. And he began to open up and tell him, and not just him, he told me, he told our whole group uh, as we went out two by two or all together, he ended up telling our whole group that for years and years and years, he'd been terrified of telling other people that his dad abused him horribly when he was a child. And then as he's talking with this other young man that had never heard about Christ before, he realized that the way to connect with him, the way to show him how wonderful Christ was, the way to join in as an encourager with Christ to him was to say, even in the midst of that, God use that so that I can come to you and tell you he's better. He can heal you. He can help you. He can save you. God's not like that. His experience of affliction ended up resulting in that man's salvation because he knew the kind of God that he serves and he was put forward with Christ as an encourager, not just to us, huge encouragement to us, but also to that man. You see, when God gives us affliction, it's often to encourage others. And so we see overall that hardships are never pointless for the believer. They do something. 
And for you, maybe it's the first time that you've really seen this or understood it, that hardships have a purpose. I remember the first time I really saw this, it was something I wrestled with for a long time. Like, how can God be sovereign and I go through this and it'd be good for me and glorifying to him? But it is. And for you, I just encourage you, I challenge you, as Paul did, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. Through many tribulations, not just one, all through our life. It's not about carving out a comfortable life. It's about giving the gospel to other people and believing in Jesus. Let's pray.